Well, for the last five weeks, we've been talking about how to be happy. And in our series, Run, Force, Run, we've, we've been talking about the six, six secrets to living happy. And, and guys, I hope that it's been helpful to you. And a lot of you have talked to us and said it's been very meaningful in, in a series that's been a favorite of yours. And it, 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 it's something that corroborates what's, what's happening nationwide. I shared with you in the second message about a Harvard professor, Sean Aker, who along with another professor at Harvard began a class uh, about how to, how to be happy. And it wasn't, it wasn't a for credit class, but it turned out to be the most popular course on, on Harvard's campus. And so it, it, and he was kind of laughing about how interesting it is that Harvard students who should be the happiest people in the world, because most of them are advantaged and privileged to be at Harvard, how amazing it is that so many Harvard students stepped up to take that class on how to be happy. But here's the thing, even if you hadn't been here for the first five weekends and, and the talks are on the internet, but if you, if you hadn't been here for the first five talks and you just happened to come today, you came on a great day because today's talk is bigger than all the rest of them combined. Because today we're going to talk about happiness you. We're going to talk about going to happiness you and learning the secret of being happy. Well, let me start off today by asking you a question or maybe just asking you to participate in a mental exercise with me. Picture yourself happy. Now, I'm not talking about the politically correct happy. If you grew up in church like I did, chances are you have a sort of religious happy picture that you could do. But it's not what you probably really think about when you think about in your fantasy mind what it would be like to be happy. When you, when you picture yourself happy, what do you see? For, for, it, it would depend upon your life circumstances probably and your individual personality type. For many of us, we would picture ourselves with money. And that's not a bad thing. We would just see ourselves as having enough money to pay all our bills. Because if you're struggling to pay your bills, it's hard to be happy. It's like the story that was making the rounds a few years ago about a guy who won the $10 million lottery. And he was asked what he was going to do. And he said he was going to pay some bills. And someone said, well, what else are you going to do? And he said, well, the rest of my bill is just going to have to wait. <laughs> you know, some of us, just, just to pay our bills would be one thing. But it, we don't, when we picture ourselves with money, it's more than that. It's not just being able to buy what we want to buy. A lot of us would like to do things for other people in our lives. And we're thinking, you know, if I had money, I would be happy if I could take care of my friends or take care of my family. And so when you, when you see yourself happy, you see yourself with a windfall of money. On the other hand, you could have another picture. You could see yourself secure. Because if you're not living in security today, life is dangerous for you in some way. It's hard to be happy. And you're saying to yourself, if I could just see myself secure, not you know, being able to answer the phone and not be afraid of who's on the other end, or, or if I didn't have to deal with what's worrying me right now, I would be happy. On the other hand, it could be if you saw yourself happy today, if you pictured yourself happy, you'd be surrounded by friends because maybe right now you feel lonely. And even though you may have a lot of people around you, you don't feel that you have anybody who's there for you or who's got your back or someone who's on your side no matter what. And so if you were to picture yourself happy today, you would see yourself surrounded by friends, friends that you could hang with, go places with, friends who would help you move from one apartment to the next, friends that would just be in your world. And if you pictured yourself happy, that's what it looked like. If you have my personality type, you might picture yourself at the pinnacle of achievement. You know, if you're really driven, hard driven like I am with type, not just type A personality, but type triple A personality, you tend to feel that you're going to be happy when you make the next achievement or the next accomplishment. Guys, I should be extraordinarily happy because the things that I thought would make me happy, the achievements I thought would make me happy happened a long time ago. But I have a way, as some of you who have a similar personality, I have a way of taking an achievement and making that the new threshold, making that the new floor. 
that just becomes a new starting point. So if you would imagine yourself happy, you would see yourself at the pinnacle, sort of like Ayn Rand's character Howard Rourke at the end of her novel, in the final scene, seeing Howard Rourke astride the summit. And if you saw yourself happy, it would be accomplishing the greatest thing that you could accomplish, whatever it is. Or if you have a more analytical type personality, you just imagine yourself happy with all the details of your life buttoned down, everything finally fitting together. Or it could be that you're someone here today who is wiser than all the rest of us who might have been characterized in a previous category. It could be that you're here today and you're saying, if I imagine myself happy, it would just be feeling good because it's been so long since I felt good. Just to have a day without pain or to have a day where I was in good health or good shape. Or it could be that when you picture yourself happy, it's with all of the above, having all those things, money, friends, health, achievements. Whatever it is that you, you, however you picture yourself happy in your fantasy moments, let, let, me, let me melt that image, and I don't want to do that intentionally, but I, I think I need to do that. Let, let me melt that question, that, that image with two questions. And the first question is, what has life taught you about the probability of that happening? If you're 17, maybe it, you've just gotten hints so far. But if you're 35 or 40 or 50, chances are your life has given you a primer on the unlikeliness or the unlikelihood of, of that image that you have in your mind actually happening. And here is the second question. That whatever that image is of happiness, could it be taken away from you? I pastored 36 years. I pastored thousands of people, and I have known people who actually had enough money to buy anything they wanted. They had enough money to buy anything that their friends wanted. But then a disease came, and even though they had the money, it took that life away from them. So my question is, if it, if it is circumstantial in nature, what has life taught you about the likelihood of that scenario taking place? And number two, could you lose it? It's no wonder that happiness is so elusive. You know, we're thinking to ourselves, I'm probably not going to get it, and if I do get it, I'm going to have to fight to keep it. And the fact of the matter is, when we think about happiness from our fantasy perspective, if someone were to come to us today and say, are you happy? And I would probably have to put myself in this category if I were honest. Our answer would be something like this. Not completely. Not completely. See, most of us are running. Most of us are running every day of our lives. It's sort of the American way. And it's not a race that we're running. It's a chase. We're either chasing the elusive happiness or we're being chased. We're either chasing the dream or we're being chased by the dream stealers. And maybe both. But we're not running in a race to win. We're running in a chase. And if you are chasing happiness, your word is or your statement is, I'll be happy when. If you got that statement going on in your life, I'll be happy when we close on the house. I'll be happy when I get out of college. I'll be happy when I get a job. I'll be happy when I get a different job. I'll be happy when I get kids. I'll be happy when my kids leave the house. I mean, if your happiness is always going to be when, you're chasing. If you're here today and you say, I can't be happy because, that's because you're being chased. There's something chasing you. There's something worrying you, troubling you, chasing you. See, here's the reason why I think the course at Harvard has been so popular and the reason why this series has been something that's captured the imagination of New Spring. 
I just think that in the world we live in, especially the nation we live in, America, with all that we have, with all of our technology, and with all of our possessions, don't you feel sometimes that all that kind of mocks us? Because we have all this emotional stress and disorder with all these possessions. We are the richest people in the history of the world. We're the most technologically savvy people in the history of the world. And yet we're struggling to be happy. And and I think that in our minds, if we were truly honest with ourselves, we would begin to wonder if happiness is even possible. How many Americans have come to the conclusion that it's not really possible to be happy? Perhaps we'll just settle with life being tolerable. If I can just get to the place where I can tolerate life, I'll be all right. Or if I can just get to a place where life is functional. But the reason why we keep pursuing this idea of happiness, and I think this is the reason, we've met people who are happy. See, that's the thing. If, we, if, we, if we're struggling to be happy, we could say, well, maybe it's impossible. But, but what, what breaks the curve and causes us to continue to explore this idea is that Isn't it true that we've met some people who are happy? In the four o'clock service, I said it this way, and I caught myself because just while I was talking, I realized I had actually misstated. I said this, almost everybody I know who is happy has worse circumstances than I do. And then I caught myself because I started scrolling through their pictures and I realized everybody I know who is truly happy has worse circumstances than I do. See, do you think about how the juxtaposition of our conversation at this point, we open by saying, what would the circumstances be if you could picture yourself truly happy? But now I'm realizing that the people I know who are truly happy have worse circumstances than we do. I remember so well November of 1996. I was asked to speak for the first time at a conference at a church in Toronto, Canada. I'd never been to Canada before. Whenever I speak in a foreign country for a different culture, I'm always concerned that somehow I'm going to do something that will be unintentionally offensive to the audience or gauche. And so I try to get coached up by people in that culture to make sure I don't say something foolish that's, you know, very American or since I'm from Texas, very Southern. So, you know, I'm talking to the people from Canada. I'm saying, you know, help me with the colloquialisms. Tell me about the units of currency and all these things. I'm trying to get ready, but I didn't need to worry. They were, they were the most receptive, one of the most receptive audiences I ever talked to. What I remember even though that's been a number of years now, what I remember is when the service was over, there would be a long queue of people who wanted to talk with me, and I would just sort of like go from person to person. But there was this one woman in, 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 who would find a way to position herself as the last person in line so that I would be the last person that she talked to, and she was impossible to miss, a beautiful Asian lady. And she had a smile. I promise you, it felt like the smile was six feet wide. It lit up the room. I mean, I just got to the place where I could not wait to talk to Kim and she would be at the end of the line, and she would just be so encouraging and want to talk to me. And, and I just, and in the second or third night I was there, she asked if she could have her picture made with me. And so there's, I have a picture with her and her pastor, and it's one of the most precious possessions that I own. Because I was talking to the pastor about Kim two or three nights after I got there, and he said, well, you know who she is, don't you? I said, yeah, she's Kim. She's the, the lady who's always at the end of the line. He, he said, no, you, you know who she is, don't you? He said, she's the girl in the photograph. Well, if you're over 40, you know what I'm talking about. The girl in the photograph. One of the top 10, famous, uh, the top 10 most famous American photographs. Pulitzer Prize winning. 
If you remember the Vietnam War, you know the girl in the photograph. When we were dropping napalm, it's a little girl who was running naked in the streets. I mean, it was something that galvanized American opinion. And I thought, are you kidding me? That beautiful woman with that magnetic smile is the girl in the photograph? And when Kim, I asked Kim to tell me her story, and when she did, she began to tell me the story of how when the napalm fell, a little boy in the picture died just a short time later, and they thought she was going to die. They were just leaving there to wait for her to die. Her skin had come off in shreds. But there was a doctor, a serving volunteer doctor who was there who thought he might be able to save her life. And surgeries were performed on Kim, one after the other, all life-threatening at first. She went through, I can't remember, I want to say 20 surgeries, but I think it may have even been more than that. You can do this when you go home. Please don't do it now. But when you, when you go home, Google Kim Fuke. And, and just Google images for Kim Fuke because there's one of the many images of Kim that's there on the internet where she's holding one of her children and her back is bare and you can see the horrific scarring on her back. I challenge you to look at the picture and see if you don't have to look away. On Saturday night, Kim came to me. And she said, Pastor, it's a little bit of an accident. She said, Pastor, I won't be able to be here over the weekend. I should tell you this before I finish that part of the story. That after Kim did survive, she wanted to be a doctor, but then she began to be victimized by the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union saw her as a propaganda tool. I mean, after all, this is the horrific warmongering Americans and what they have done. And so they begin to send Kim all over the world to show how horrific the Americans have been. But that, too, victimized her. And so when she and her husband landed in Toronto, Canada, they just decided to walk off the airplane, walk to the embassy and ask for asylum. And they lived in Canada, and she happened to go into a church and learn about Jesus Christ and gave her life to Christ. Now, I'll tell you that so that you'll understand this. She said to me, Pastor, I won't be able to be here to hear you tomorrow. I've been asked to go to the Vietnam Memorial on Veterans Day to give a speech. And as long as I live, I will remember her as she smiled that huge smile and said to me, would you pray for me that I can tell those soldiers I forgive them because Christ has forgiven me. Now that speech that I prayed for that day has become a very famous speech. And Kim, since that time, has gone all over the world speaking because that speech that she gave at the Vietnam Memorial two days after she asked me to pray for her, it still resonates. And I want you to hear part of it. But here's the thing I want you to hear. Listen to the happiness that's in this speech. I am very happy to be with you today. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk and to meet with you on this Veterans Day. As you know, I am the little girl who was running to escape the napalm fire. I do not want to talk about the war because I cannot change history. I've suffered a lot from both physical and emotional pain. Sometimes I thought I could not live, but God saved me and gave me faith and hope. Even if I could talk face-to-face -face with the pilot who dropped the bombs, I would tell him we can't change history, but we should try to do good things for the present and for the future to promote peace. I did not think that I could marry nor have any children because of my burns. But now I have a wonderful husband and lovely son and a happy family. Dear friends, I just dream one day people all over the world can live in real peace. No fighting, no hostility. We should work together to build peace and happiness for people in all nations. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this important day. Kim Fuke. See, we hear it. 
Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to that. And, and I don't think we do it intentionally, but our reaction to that is blah, 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 blah. Until somebody stands in front of us like Kim Fuke and lives it. And lives it. What does Kim Fuke know that I don't know? She clearly knows something that I don't know. Because here's a woman who's been through stuff I can't even dream of, and yet she is happy every day of her life. I've had so many blessings in my life, and I still deal with anxiety. What does Kim know that I don't know? I mean, think for a moment about the people that you know in your life who are happy. I mean, it may be your grandmother, it may be your mom, it might be a friend, it might be one of your children. What is it that happy people know? Is there a happiness university? Is there a degree in happiness? Yeah. Yeah. There is. See, not all universities have ivy on the walls. Not all universities charge tuition. There is a happiness university. And in closing this series today, I want to take you to the close of this book that I've been encouraging all of us to read in the Bible. The book is called Philippians. And it's only four chapters long. And Paul, throughout this book, is talking about happiness. And I shared with you in the first week, he said, I want you to know what really matters. And today we're in chapter four. We're at the end of the book. And Paul is signing off. And one last time, he is giving the secret to happiness, which is why I say if you came today, you came the most important day. Let me read the language to you. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have been initiated into the secret of living. Well, those cognitive statements are impossible to miss. Paul said, I've learned. I know how. I've been initiated into the secret. New Spring, happiness isn't something you're born with. I think we have the idea that happy people were just born happy. But happiness, happiness isn't something you're born with. You can't convince me that Kim Fuke was born with happiness. Kim Fuke went to happiness you. She has a degree in happiness now. I think she's got graduate degrees in happiness. And that is what Paul is saying. Look, if you, you're not going to be born happy. It's something you're going to have to learn. And, and Paul said, I've learned. I know how. I've been initiated into the secret. Let me just cherry pick that middle one first. I know how. I like the expression, I know how, especially if somebody knows how to do something I don't know how to do. Because number one, it tells me it can be done, tells me there's a way. All of you know how to do something. I mean, do this with me, work an exercise with me. Just take the statement, I know how to blank. What's in your blank? I know how to. Some of you could say, I know how to teach. Some of you could say, I know how to try a case, I know how to practice law. I know how to fix something that's broken. I know how to play the guitar. I know how to repair an automobile. I know how to do brain surgery. There are a lot of new springers I know who know how to do all kinds of things. I mean, that is, to me, I'm always impressed when somebody says, I know how to do something, and especially if they know how to do something, I don't know. So well, Paul is saying, I know how to be happy, and instantly I'm perking up and saying, okay. But sometimes it's an intimidating thing when somebody knows how to do something you don't know how to do. And Paul says the one thing that makes me feel better about myself because he puts himself on my level. He says, I've learned how. In effect, when someone says, I've learned how to do something, what they're saying to you is, there was a time I didn't know how, but I did what it took to learn how. 
and now I know how. Well, if you study the life of this man, Paul, he's, he's in his 60s at this point. And clearly the first time we meet him, he didn't know how to be happy. That's in Acts chapter 9. You know, the first time we meet Paul, he's young, he's a lawyer, he's powerful, he's got money, he's got prestige, he's an up-and-comer, but he's not happy at all. He is chasing. He's chasing Christians. He is persecuting Christians. He's chasing success. He's chasing God's approval. He's chasing the dream, and yet he's miserable. Now, guys, when he says, I've learned how to be happy, do you know where he is? He's in his 60s. He's in a prison cell. He's chained to guards. Isn't that interesting? When he had everything going for him, he wasn't happy. Now that he's chained to guards in prison as an old man, he says, I know how to be happy. And then he says something that I find really interesting. In verse 12, he says, I know how. Now we're going to get specific about what he knows. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Those are both water terms. Water was very precious in the first century. It was kind of a sign of blessing or a sign of, of concern. If, if, if there was plenty of water, then there was plenty of, of, of success in life. If it got dry, then it was difficult. And Paul was saying, in effect, I know how to deal with the dry times, and I know how to deal with it when everything is abundant. And here's the thing, and I'm not trying to be metaphoric on you here today, but no matter what's going on in your life, you're going to have dry seasons. You show me the best marriage here, and it'll still have dry seasons. Your career, as sterling as it may be, your career is going to have dry seasons. Your relationship with friends, there's going to be dry seasons. Do you know how to be happy when life turns dry on you? But then Paul said, I know how to be happy when everything is going great. And somebody can say, well, duh, that's not hard. I think it's harder then than when life is tough. You see, when life is going great for you and you're overflowing, you can forget where you came from. You can begin to think it'll always be that way. Or you can lose sense of perspective and grasp for more. Paul said, I know how. I know how to deal with life when it's dry and when it overflows. And then he adds this, everywhere and in all things. How many of us are not happy because we don't like where we are? I mean, there's some of us here today who think, I'll be happy if I can leave Kansas. Honestly, I came here 28 years ago, and I realized something about Wichita. There's nothing else to do here but business. We have no, we have no mountains, no beaches, no theme parks. There's nothing to do here but work, and a bunch of us are from somewhere else. And it could be, well, if I didn't have to live here, I could be happy. Or if, if I had some different circumstance, Paul said, look, I've learned the secret to being happy wherever I am and in all circumstances. And then he gets to it. I have been initiated, he said, into the secret. Now, what's interesting about this, New Testament is written in Greek. This is the only time in the Bible that this expression is used. Usually it's used as the secret initiation terminology to be initiated into a cult. There were cults in that day. There were, there were organizations. There were groups in that day that had their secret rituals. Some of you have been part of an organization in college where you had to go through a ritual. You had to learn, you know, the handshake or the terminology or whatever you had to do in a drinking game to get initiated. Just seeing who's in the crowd today. Paul said, I have been initiated into the secret of being happy. What's interesting about that is if you've ever heard much about the Bible, even if you haven't heard much about the Bible, chances are this verse is so famous, you probably have heard it before. And what's interesting is Paul said, I've been initiated into the secret 
And here's the secret. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That statement, I can do all things through Christ which gives me strength, is a, is a personal statement. We tend to make it personal on the first end. We, we tend to make it personal on our end. I can do all things. That's not the intensely personal part. He says, I can do all things through Christ. Now, New Spring, if you, if you get this next thing, it's worth whatever distance you had to drive to be here. He does not say, I can do all things through God. See, a lot of us, when we talk about God, it's sort of like a hazy idea. There is this superpower out there somewhere in the universe. But he doesn't say, I can do all things through God. He says, I can do all things through Christ. Well, Christ is Jesus. What do you mean by that, Paul? When, when you think about Jesus, what do you think about? You think about a historical Jesus, somebody who taught, or do you think about a religious Jesus or someone hanging on a cross? Those are all good pictures of Jesus, but that's not what Jesus looks like today. There is a scripture, and I'm going to take you to it right now. In Revelation chapter 1, John tells us what Jesus looks like now. John runs into Jesus on the island of Patmos, and when Jesus appears before him, well, let's just read it together. He said, I turned to see who was speaking to me, and I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The, stars, the seven stars are the angels of the ministers, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And later he would say that he walks among the lampstands. Now, what does that mean to us tonight? Well, first of all, you just got an image of what Jesus looks like now. When he came to our world, he shed his glory, and he lived like a human being fully. But today, he's not the humble carpenter from, from Galilee, nor is he the frail figure hanging on a cross. He is the person whom John saw with all his glory. And here's what he said on a practical basis. He is saying, I hold my people in my hand, and I walk among the church. Now listen, the church is not the building. It doesn't mean that Jesus walks around this building. It means he walks with you and me every day of our lives who belong to him. And Paul has said, I've been initiated into the secret. It's just living life with Jesus. You learn life with Jesus living with him day by day because you come up against things that you don't think you have the strength to face. But he sort of whispers in the ear, together you and I can do this. I will give you the strength. And you get through that moment. And when you get through that moment, now you have the experience and you come to another one and you say, well, the last time I was here, he gave me strength. I don't have to freak out about it like I did last time. And day by day and month by month and year by year, we learn the secret to life. It's not in having circumstances. It's in having Jesus. Because if Jesus is with us, what do we have to chase? Because everything we need is with us. And if Jesus is with us, why should we let ourselves be chased? Because 
He's not afraid of anything. I have learned the secret of life in all things. It's not what I have. It is who is with me. There is someone here today we will not count. There is someone here you won't see, but he is as here as you and I are here. And he is Jesus. He is the risen Christ. And he is with you. Life, as I said at the beginning, has probably taught us we're not going to have our fantasies. And it's taught us that even if we do have them, it could take, us, take them away from us. And guys, life's going to take some stuff away from you. Life's going to take some people away from you. But the things that are really important are not lost. The same guy, Paul, who said, I, 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 know, who, I, I, I know how to be happy, he also said, I know who I've trusted, and I, I know that I've, things that I've committed to him, he will keep. I had a strange experience this week. Um, my, my brother, Roger, died before I was born. Um, he died with brain cancer and, um, yeah, at the age of three. And um, he's buried in South Texas. And recently my parents have decided they want to be buried in a cemetery in a little area outside of uh, Burnett, Texas called Hoover's Valley, about 30 miles away from where Roger's buried. And so I've been working with the funeral home down there on moving Roger's remains. And um, I'm, when it happens, I'm going to go down in a, in a company. I'm just kind of old school in that regard. But I signed a document this week, and it was the official permission to move Roger, or to move his remains. And I, his name was there, and I signed my name next to his and wrote the words, brother. And I thought, I've never written that word before in regard to Roger. But when I talked to the funeral home, I said, well, it's one thing is I'm, I'm not just concerned that we move his remains. I, I want to make sure we move the stone. Because although I never got to know Roger and his funeral happened years before I was born, I've seen his stone many times. And there's the, my parents had a, a song that they loved a great deal. And they inscribed the title of that song on Roger's stone. And that inscription says, safe in the arms of Jesus. I saw my mom before the last service and we talked about that for a few moments. If life is all about what you get and security, if you gotta have those things to be happy, life's gonna come someday and take it away from you. But if you really have Jesus, life can never take away anything from you that you can't afford to lose. Just think about that. Jesus, lover of my soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. You've taken me from the miry clay.
closest friend I will worship you until the very end and I love you I need you though my world may fall I'll never let you go my Savior my closest last words I want to leave you with in this series is the truth of the matter is some of you are really exhausted you've run about as far as you can run trying to chase a dream or you've run as far as you can run because something's chasing you hey I'm nobody and I know that but if Jesus were here today I think he would say to you you don't need to run anymore because the living son of God is right here today with power in his hands and you can reach out by faith and put your hand in his because he's made you a promise he's promised that all your sin and all your wrongdoing he paid for on the cross you don't need to pay for that you can't you wouldn't want to Jesus says he's paid for everything that's been wrong in your life so that he can move anything off the table that stands between us and God and he's given you a standing invitation to come just like you are You don't need to fix yourself up. You don't need to put a bow on the package or put it in a gift bag. Just come like you are. You can come like you are. He won't leave you like he found you. 
And if you're willing, you can just reach out to him. Because here's the thing. You say, what do I have to do? Just call to him because the Bible says this over and over. Anyone who calls, he listens. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm going to pray a prayer with you. These are not magic words, but if you're serious and that's the important thing, you can pray with me, all right? I'm going to pray. And if you want to pray with me, just engage with me, please. Not with me, but just engage with God and reach out by prayer and by faith. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me unconditionally. And I believe you've given me a promise. I received that promise. I believe you died for my sins. Please forgive me. Right now, I give all that I am to you. Take my life walk with me. I trust you. I trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's not as easy at 56 as it used to be. <laughs> if you just pray with me, please come get a gift, okay? There's a, I, there, I have a gift for you. If you just pray to receive Christ, there's a DVD and a book that's about as long as somebody who has ADHD would write that answers a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is come back to guest services, and all you got to do is just say, I pray with Mark, or give them your card, and they'll give you this. Thank you for being... Hey, wait, before you go, we start a brand new series next week called Waiting Room, June 1st and 2nd. We start the biggest series I've ever been part of. It's, <laughs> it's called Divine Whispers. I can't wait. God bless. We'll see you next week. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs>